This is WOR New York. Stay tuned for In Conversation. First, this bulletin from the WOR newsroom. Six members of one family have been found shot to death in their night clothes in their expensive home in Amityville, Long Island. The only available information at this moment, according to the Amityville Village Police, is that the, member, the victims have been identified as members of the DeFeo family. They were found by a 23-year-old son, Ronald DeFeo, who is believed to be the only surviving member of the family. Six members of the family found shot to death in their home in Amityville, Long Island. We will have further details on the 11 o'clock news. Hey guys, I'm Amber. Hey, and I'm Derek. And we are with Quad State Paranormal. And we're back with Season 2, Episode 2. Yeah, you are listening to our Spirit Guides podcast. <laughs> uh, hope everybody had a good Halloween. October went by way, way too, too fast. fast. It's the one month I look forward to the most. Well, and I feel like we waited and waited and waited. And it got here, and then it was just gone. Yeah, and then the trees, like... It took forever for the trees to even change colors, and yeah. they, they just started to, what, like last weekend? But Well, and we're going to do family photos today, yeah. and uh, so hopefully the trees are still, <laughs> still have leaves on yeah, them. Yeah, they will be. They'll be pretty, but it's, we've been busy. Like, we've taken a little bit of a break. It seems like we've yeah. had birthdays and Halloween. Yeah, I know. It, it seems uh, we've been slacking on the podcast, yeah, but it has but... been, it's that time of year, Um like you said, it's like everybody's birthdays are at the same yeah. time. And then uh, and then we have Thanksgiving coming up, and yeah. I need to try out some recipes for <laughs> that. But hopefully we'll kind of get back on a schedule of I hope weekly. So. I hope mean, so. I, I mean, I do have a kitchen reno I've got to do. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> so yeah. but we'll try to be more consistent. But Yeah, it's kind of kind of sporadic right now. Yeah. With uh, I know we tried to... We wanted to, when we started this, we tried to do once, you know, one episode a week um, and drop them on Sunday. And uh, we've been kind of out of that loop for a little bit. Yeah, and then Christmas is coming up. So we're going to be doing like Christmas shopping and stuff. But Man, we were at the store yesterday and they're already playing Christmas playing music. Playing Christmas music. It's kind of nice. So for those of you who have your, your Christmas trees and Christmas decorations up, we still love you. Nah. I do anyway, <laughs> because I love Christmas. Christmas and Halloween. Those are my favorites. That's the best time of the year. But we're not, like you said, Thanksgiving gets overlooked. And I'm not overlooking it this year because I have new recipes I want to try. Brand new sweatpants to wear (laughs) with all the food. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just joking. (laughs) (laughs) I do not have sweatpants to wear. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, obviously if you guys uh, clicked on this, you already saw the title. Um, next weekend, which is November well, third, this, this coming up Saturday. This coming up Saturday, yeah. uh, November thirteenth is the forty-seven year anniversary of the Amityville murders. I think everybody's heard of that. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of those things. Uh, you know, you see uh, on TV, they've made movies and documentaries and all kinds of. Stuff. I think everybody has heard of it. Uh, but we thought with the anniversary coming up, that it was a good time to. Just add it to our podcast collection, I guess. We do have to put a disclaimer on here that there could be graphic or 
gruesome details. Yeah. Because so. uh, we kind of get into the murders a little bit um, in uh, in detail. So if you're listening to this in your car driving to work with kids, you know, you may yeah, want to wait till you drop them off. Uh, right. I mean, it's not... I mean, we're not getting into... I mean, it's not, like, real gory Super or anything, gory, but, but we like something to... that kids probably should not hear. Right, yeah. Um, unless you have answers for them, I guess. <laughs> but, yeah, it's, uh, you know, it kind of gets into the murders, so we don't want to... We don't want you to be surprised whenever you're listening to it with, with the kids around and trying to turn it down real quick or something. But, uh... Should we go ahead and just get into it? Yeah, let's go ahead and start, I guess. All right. I'm going to get started. Well, you go ahead. <laughs> 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, Long Island, New York, is one of the most famous addresses for those interested in both horror and the paranormal. Everyone knows the story of George and Kathy Lutz, who purchased the Dutch Colonial in December of 1975, and they moved out after only 28 days. They said that a demonic entity tormented them, causing them to move in haste, leaving most of their property behind. Their experiences were published in a book, The Amityville Horror, which was written in 1977 by J. Anson. Anson's book was adapted into the 1979 classic horror film of the same name. The film spawned a franchise, 16 films both directly or loosely based on the Lutz story. 16? I didn't hear, I, like, I don't know Like, I think those. I know, like, five, if that. Really? Because I know maybe three. Like, the Amityville, I, well, I, I've heard of the second one, but I don't even know. I've never seen that. And then the remake so, that they made of the first one. I wonder if they're including, like, documentaries and stuff. They have to be. Sixteen? We should have looked that up so we could have seen the list of all of them. Huh. Yeah, or that maybe seems there was exaggerated, but yeah, I, yeah, <laughs> I don't know. Continue. Okay. <laughs> this story isn't about the Lutzes; it's about the DeFeos. Dun dun dun. So the DeFeos were a family of seven who purchased the house in 1965. Uh, the family was Ronald DeFeo Sr., his wife Louise, and then their son. Ronald Jr., daughters Don and Allison, and sons Mark and John. Six members were murdered in their sleep in the morning hours on November 13, 1974. Ronald DeFeo Jr. eventually conf confessed to killing his family, but changed his story many times over the years. Their story is touched on in the Amityville uh, films, Amityville 2, The Possession, which came out in 1982, is considered a loose prequel based on the book Murder in Amityville in 1979 by parapsychologist Hans Holzer. Amityville 2 is very loosely based on the DeFeo murders. I like that very loosely based. Mm -hmm. um, the DeFeo family was originally from Brooklyn, New York. Uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr. worked as a service manager at his wife Louise's family's car dealership, uh, Briganti Carl Buick in Brooklyn. Ronald Sr. dubbed the family's home High Hopes. Um, I don't know if you've, I'm sure everybody who's listening to this has seen pictures of 
the house back then. They used to have this like street sign kind of looking thing that was in their front yard. Um, like, you know, you see people with their names or something, like little stuff right. in their front yards. Um, this said High Hopes on I, it. I actually haven't ever seen it. Oh, well, <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but anyway, yeah, they did. They This sign was in their front yard and it said High Hopes on it. Um, Harvey Aronson, um, author of High Hopes, The Amityville Murder, which came out in 1982, explained when they moved from Brooklyn and when they bought the house, they had high hopes. All was not well with the family. Their problems were not paranormal. Ronald DeFeo Sr. was verbally and physically abusive towards his wife and children. Besides Louise, his main target was their eldest son, Ronald Jr., which uh, a lot of people, I think his friends and family, called him Butch. Uh, Butch DeFeo's uh, friends were afraid to go to the DeFeo home as some had witnessed Ronald Sr. fly into rage and either hit Louise or Butch. Butch DeFeo's friend, uh, Barry Springer, said that the DeFeo home was a crazy house and that they were always yelling at each other. Butch was bullied at school where he was beaten up and was called fat. Now, all the pictures that I've seen of uh, Ronald or Butch, whatever you want to call him, uh, DeFeo, he's always been really skinny. So I don't know. Maybe he was a chunky kid. I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. Um, but his father encouraged him to stand up to these bullies and fight back. That sounds like me. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> when the kids come home from school, if somebody was mean to them, or I'm like, oh, well, don't start trouble. But if somebody hits you... You hit them back. <laughs> but I also tell them it's okay if they don't want to. Because sometimes, sometimes I don't think that they want to get in trouble. So Well, it sounds like that's what was going on here. It sounds like he was being bullied at school and his dad was telling him, you know, hey, you better stand you up gotta for yourself. You got to do something or are going to keep doing it. As Butch got older, his temper became worse than his father's. He and his father often had physical altercations. Butch is described as unpredictable and his temper would flare for no reason. His parents became concerned and even sent him to a psychiatrist. No. I'd never heard that, well, that he does went it to say, a psychiatrist. It doesn't say how old he was then? No, it just says as he got older. As he got older. Okay, I was trying to see maybe what, what when that was that he first started seeing a psychologist. Okay, go have ahead. Have you heard that before, though? I haven't, he, no. I didn't either. That's why I was kind of interested. I wanted to know, uh, you know when he actually started seeing the psychiatrist, but... After psychiatry failed, they resorted to giving Butch whatever he wanted, including a speedboat. That's the way That'd to clear nice. him. Yeah. <laughs> he and his father still had their usual violent fights, even as Ronald Sr. Uh, gave his son money and material possessions. I guess they thought by giving him stuff, maybe it would change his attitude and he would be a better person. <laughs> um, huh. Due to his behavior, Butch was asked to leave Amityville High School at age seventeen. Okay, so there we go. So he, so it was, it was probably, that. yeah, it was. So he was probably a freshman or something in high school, maybe junior highish, probably before whenever he had to see a psychiatrist. Okay, go ahead. After leaving school, he began to use LSD and heroin. His behavior became increase, increasingly unpredictable and violent. While he was on a hunting trip, okay, that's a really good idea. Someone who okay. is unpredictable and violent on is LSD on drugs. and heroin. Let's give him a gun. <laughs> him that a gun. is a wonderful idea. 
Okay. But on this hunting trip with friends, Butch aimed his rifle at a man he knew since childhood. The man left, and when Butch saw his friend later that day, he asked him why he left so soon. Probably because he noticed you were getting ready to shoot uh -huh. him. Um, at age 18, he began working for his father and was giving a weekly paycheck whether or not he showed up for work. That's what. That's the kind of job I want to have. I'm telling you, that's uh, that would be right up. I mean, think anybody's alley. Yeah. You know, um, let's see. Butch worked in the service department doing oil changes, tune-ups, and washes. He admitted that he only uh, that he took advantage of working for the family. Well, who wouldn't? Yeah. If you don't yeah. have to show up and you get paid. Um, he once told a psychiatrist that he could do whatever he wanted on the job because his father was his boss. Deborah Cosentino? Cosentino, maybe? A server at the Chatterbox, where Butch DeFeo frequently drank with friends, said that he was usually a nice guy except for when he drank. He recalled, or she recalled him throwing bar stools and puke, or pull cues, pukies, pull cues. <laughs> Sherry Klein, his girlfriend at the time, whom also had to be psycho. Um, uh, she, this was Sherry Klein. It was his girlfriend at the time of the murders. Um, also recalled an incident when Butch uh, went to her apartment with some friends. They became very rowdy, and when they tried to, or when she tried to calm Butch down, he shoved her across the room. She reportedly climbed through a window and went to her parents' house to get away from him. And she was still his girlfriend after that? Uh, apparently. Neighbors described an incident uh, with a woman named Mrs. Nemeth. Uh, she said that Butch accused her daughter of throwing rocks at a religious shrine that the DeFeos had in their front yard. When she insisted that the daughter wouldn't do something like that, Butch became angry and began yelling at her. She said that if... Uh, that if, he said that if she was a man, he'd punch her in the face. <laughs> and that if her husband had a problem, he'd punch him in the face too. As she walked away, neighbors said, uh, said he followed her and continued yelling. Yeah, I think I would have just kept walking <laughs> too and tried to get away from well, him. Well, I mean, this, okay, so let's backtrack. So, so far, he's seen a psychiatrist whenever he was in junior high, uh -huh. high school. Um, he is on drugs. He points guns at people. Yeah. Yeah. For some reason they thought it was a good idea to let him have guns. His dad is just throwing money at uh -huh. him and giving him whatever he wants. He's drinking and abusive to his girlfriend. Yeah. Well, sounds like a winner. Yeah. <laughs> Jeez. There was something I was going to say, but I forgot what it was. Oh, I wonder if, um, in the neighborhood. Like, I wonder if he was kind of known as that Oh, I'm sure. Person. I'm sure he was. Like, if they're um, like, you know, he's crazy, just stay away from him. Right. You know? I, I'm sure with all this going on, especially if he was yelling at this I um, mean, before the murders and, even took place. That's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Leading up to that, I wonder if, you know, he's crazy. Oh, stay I'm sure. He him. sounds like that guy that everybody, you see him walking down the street or something, and you're like, hey, there's crazy Roy. Yeah. You know, I don't know a Roy, by the way. I'm just throwing <laughs> that out there. But you know what I mean? I'm sure he was. Okay. So in the weeks leading up to the murders, Butch threatened his father with a gun. There we go. During gun. an argument. 
His father trusted him with making a twenty thousand dollar department for the uh, deposit. Sorry for the dealership. Time out. Okay, so we just went through this history, and now his dad's giving him trusting that's a him good idea. To yeah. twenty thousand dollars to deposit that for him. What so it says in the weeks leading up, Butch threatened his father with a gun during an argument. So I guess this is they were arguing over this money. Oh, maybe, yeah. It doesn't really say what they were arguing okay. about. So, I mean, I would hope it wouldn't be like he threatened his dad with a gun and then later his dad gave him this $20,000 deposit. So I'm assuming it's this argument that he threatened oh, well, him with a gun. Well, the next paragraph kind of... Oh, Okay. Well, let's, we'll continue. <laughs> so his father trusted him with making this $20,000 deposit for the dealership. Butch said that the money was stolen and his father didn't believe him. When police questioned Butch about the robbery, he was described as being uncooperative and even violent. So that's where the argument was. Okay. Um, in November of 1974, uh, Butch was 23, uh, yeah, 23 years old and still working for his father. I think his father was kind of keeping an eye on him Maybe. by this time. Maybe. Um, he was on probation at the time. He pled guilty to having stolen an outboard motor. He admitted he uh, kept the job at the dealership because he could come and go as he pleased. Plus, he needed, to pay, he needed pay stubs to show his probation officer. On November 13th, Butch left early for work. Stopped at a diner to pass the time uh, as he waited for the dealership to open. He left work early to meet his girlfriend, Sherry Klein. He also met with a friend named Bobby uh, Kelsky. He complained to both throughout the day that he wasn't able to get in touch with his family. He said that all the cars were in the garage, but no one was answering the phone. Okay, so I have a problem with that, too. So, he knew... Well, let me ask a question, too. I don't, it doesn't say. Does he still live at the house at this time? See, that's what He's I, like 20, I thought. He's yeah. like 23, I think. Well, and that kind of gets in um, to some of the controversy later on. Because um, when these murders happened, he claimed that he was married to Sherry Klein and was living in New Jersey or somewhere. Um, and wasn't around the house at the time of the murders. I don't think it was her that he said he was married to. I think oh, it no, was no, no. It was, girl. uh, I don't know her name, but oh, I started with a G. Uh, you're right. Geraldine. Geraldine. Something like yeah, that. You're right. Like he claimed he was married and like, yeah, you're right. Yeah. And he had this girlfriend at the same time. Yeah. And, and that he was, um, li at home with her. But then later on, it was said that he was actually still living at the house. Okay. So I think it's kind of for speculation still. Um, but, uh, of course, later on, and I don't know if we get into it here, but, um, you know, she said that he wasn't living with her. And was it the Geraldine lady who he said her brother? Oh, yeah. and Could, could te kind of testify and back up his story that he was with him? Yeah, or... he could, he could uh, verify everything because he had him with him when he went to check on the on his parents and stuff, and they come to find out the brother was made up. Yeah, it's all made up. Yeah. Didn't even exist. That's kind of a lot of info we just threw at you, but we did do some research <laughs> on this. Um, but uh, let's see. I don't remember where I was at. 
Well, I'll take it over. Okay, go ahead. So he met up with, he was with his girlfriend, Sherry, and he also met up with the Bobby Kelsky person. Okay, yeah. He complained to both throughout the day that he wasn't able to get in touch with his family. He said that the all the cars were in the garage, but no one was answering the phone. He even called. Oh, that's what I was going to say. That, so he knew that all the cars were in the garage. But no one was yeah, answering so, the phone, which means he had to have seen the cars in the garage because he wouldn't be able to drive by and see the cars right. in the garage. Well, I guess unless the garage doors were open. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. But, uh, yeah. Okay, continue. He even called home in front of his girlfriend. So, I mean, to me, this is just kind of like, you know... Well, I'll go into this after this paragraph. Okay, yeah, okay. let me just finish this. Okay. Right. At 6 p.m., he was sitting in Henry's bar which was not too far from his house. He tried to call home again and complained to his friends about getting no answer. He said that he was going to go home and break into the house through a window. At around 6.30 p.m., he returned to the bar. He called out to to the people saying that his parents had been shot. A group of his friends left the bar with him. They went to the house and discovered that the family was dead. A friend of his, Joseph Yesser, called the police. Okay, so if he said he had to break into the house, apparently he was not, I mean, that's kind of like he wasn't living at the house, but. Right, and and I think everybody in the world's watched enough ID channel to realize that what this sounds like, and it sounds like to me, even though we know the story and we know different stuff about it, it sounds like he has killed the family, mm-hmm. and now he is setting up a situation to make it look, look like. I mean, calling in front of his friends, complaining to his so friends that, that they're not answering. Right, so that that way everybody's going, well, they're, I mean, I yeah. was there when he called home. Right. You know, he's setting up alibis yep. is what he's doing. Definitely. The bodies of Butch DeFeo's entire family were found dead, lying in their beds, still dressed in their nightclothes. Deputy Deputy Chief Medical Examiner Howard Edelman would later determine that the DeFeo family bled to death in their beds due to gunshot wounds. The murder weapon was a 35 caliber Marlin rifle. The parents were shot twice and each of the children once. Man. Uh, Ronald DeFeo Sr., age 43, was shot twice in the lower back. One bullet exploded into his kidney and exited his chest, the right side of his chest, onto the bed. The other entered the base of the spine and was lodged in his neck. DeFeo Sr. could have been alive a few seconds to several minutes after being shot. The waistband of his shorts uh, was pulled down a bit, indicating that he had moved upward as he died. Louise DeFeo, age 43 also, um, she was also shot twice. The bullets entered her right flank and chest. One bullet landed on the mattress, and the other came out of the middle of her of of the chest, re-entered her left breast and wrist. It that's must have ricocheted yeah. or something. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, the bullets shattered her rib cage, uh, splintered bone, and destroyed most of her right lung, diaphragm, and liver. Although face down. Her chest was slightly raised from the bed, and her body was turned to the right. The medical examiner said that she could have been alive for several minutes after being shot, perhaps as many as 10 minutes. 
her position indicated that she may have woken up, raised her body, her upper body, off the bed, and possibly looked toward the bedroom door in the killer's direction. And you said that the that that couple that they did sleep in the same room, right? Yeah, um, okay. if yeah, you can see. Um, and I may try to find, you know, some of these crime scene photos and maybe put them on our Instagram page. Uh, but you can see uh, that they were in the same bed. Because hearing that, I would think that they would have been indifferent. Yeah. But just because, I mean, why wasn't she up, you know? Yeah. Um, Unless he just went in there and shot them that fast. That's, uh, yeah, anything that I've seen, it's, you know, that they, they were in the same bed okay. when they were killed. I think that's weird anyway when couples don't sleep in the same room. <laughs> okay, let's see. Mark, age 12, and John, age 9, were both shot in the back at close range. The medical examiner determined that the killer stood between the beds less than two feet away. The bullets penetrated the liver, diaphragm, lungs, and heart of each. The bullets went through the boys' mattresses and into the box springs. John's spinal cord was severed, which may have caused involuntary twitching in the lower body. Allison, age 13, was shot once in the face from less than two feet away. She may have turned around and saw the muzzle of the gun. The bullet entered her left cheek and moved to her right ear. It then tore into her brain and damaged her skull. The bullet exited, ripped through the mattress, hit the back wall, and ricocheted to the floor. It's weird to me, like, all of them are face down, you know? Yeah. Like, I know there's other things about, well, you know, were they drugged before he did it and stuff like that. I mean, I think that he just, you know, went in there and told him he was going to do it and made him lay face down. Yeah. I mean, that's that's my opinion on it. And that could be. Don, age 18, was shot at the back of the neck from two and a half feet away. I wonder how they determine that. I guess just based on uh, the splatter. Uh, probably. The bullet entered just below her left ear and blasted through the left temple onto her pillow. The left side of her face collapsed. Oh, brain particles mixed with the blood saturating her pillow. I, yeah, I could have done without hearing <laughs> all of this stuff. Uh, Butch told police he stayed home uh, from work the day before with an upset stomach. He said that he watched a late night movie, uh, Castle is what he said he watched, or Castle Keep, starring Burt Lancaster, and fell asleep around 2 a.m. in the TV room. He awoke at 4 a.m. with pain in his stomach and said that he saw his brother uh, Mark's wheelchair outside the bedroom door. His brother broke his leg uh, playing football. Uh, he said that he saw the bathroom light on from under the door and heard the toilet flush. He said that he was well rested from the day before, so he decided to go to work. He ate a late lunch, went to work, left early, and saw his girlfriend and some friends. Now, <laughs> okay, so it says that he fell asleep around 2 a.m. 
woke up at 4 a.m. So at 4 a.m. when he saw the light on and stuff, he decided to go to work. I guess. That's a, woke up at 4 a.m. Said he saw. So that's a early rising dealership. Right, yeah. Okay. At first. Well, hang on. Because then it says he ate. Went to work, left early, and saw his girlfriend and some friends. Yeah. At first, Butch claimed the murders had to have been committed by a man named Louis Fellini, who Butch said was a mafia hitman. He said that a few years ago, Fellini and his wife had lived with his family for a little while after their house burned down in Brooklyn. He said that Fellini had a key to the house in which he buried a box of money and jewels. Butch also said that he had a violent argument with Fellini after Fellini and his wife moved. Fellini criticized a paint job that Butch had done for the dealership. He described throwing a brush at Fellini, breaking the window behind him. He also said that Fellini, uh, that he called Fellini uh, a bad name. <laughs> yeah, we won't, we, won't, <laughs> we won't say that on the podcast <laughs> he said that his father told him that Fellini was a professional hitman and that Butch didn't know what he had done by calling him names well if you know somebody if that's even like true you know but if you would know somebody was a, a hitman I wouldn't think you'd be hiring them to to paint your dealership <laughs> well maybe the maybe the the mob family said oh you're hiring <laughs> maybe <laughs> Butch also said that two weeks before the murders, during the argument regarding the robbery, his father said that not only did he have to worry about this phony robbery, but he also had to worry about losing a friend, that friend being Fellini. Well, that says a lot about someone if their friend's a hitman. <laughs> hey, I'd rather be friends with a hitman than on the other side of that. Well, I guess that's a good, that's a good point. He said that Butch's argument with Fellini put him in a position where he had to tell Fellini that if anything happened to Butch, that he was going to kill Fellini's entire family. Butch's father told him that now, because of Butch, he had to watch out for Ma and the kids. Okay. Hmm. <laughs> and, of course, this is just Butch telling the right, story. Yeah. So, I mean, that could all... I mean, do we even know that the Fellini guy is a real person? I'm assuming so. I haven't seen anything that didn't say otherwise okay. with that. But um, as he spoke to investigators, Butch told them about some of the criminal activity. Um, he admitted to burglarizing a neighbor's home with a friend to steal antiques uh, to sell. He also admitted to using heroin and told them about being on probation. When he was asked about how he was he was getting away with using drugs on probation. Butch told them that Don was providing him with urine samples. Now, Don is his the sister. The sister. Yeah, that was the oldest sister. Mm -hmm. That would have been under him. Uh, he uh, prefaced his confessions by saying that he wanted to be completely honest with them. He kept emphasizing this, meaning that he was willing to admit all of these things to the police, that he must be telling the truth about the murders. He also added that the police should look for a box that Fellini hid. He said that if they found the box empty or didn't find a box at all, that meant he must have been he must have been there. Of course, the police never found the box. Uh, Butch's grandfather, Michael Briganti Sr., arrived on scene with his son-in-law, Vincent 
Proceda? Yeah, I Proceda? think so. Uh, they were both about to... They're, they they were both asked about Butch and Fellini. His grandfather said that he knew Fellini and that he was a great guy. So there you go. So apparently Fellini was a real dude. Okay. Um, he said that he didn't know where Fellini lived and didn't know his phone number. He's described as seemingly, uh, let's see, he's described as seemingly... Insult. Seeming insulted. Oh, seeming insulted. Okay, I was like, read, man, good God, <laughs> good old Illinois education. Um, when asked if he thought Fellini committed the murders, when asked about his grandson, Briganti said that he was a wonderful grandson and that he was very proud of him. I'm proud of that drug addicted. Piece of, okay, anyway. Um, yeah. Again, he described um, as insulted when um, asked if Butch could have committed these murders. Let's see. He didn't know who Fellini... What? what hang on. I'm confused. Who is, this is the Presida. Oh, Presida, which is the, uh, the son-in-law. son-in-law. Okay. Mm-hmm. Presida didn't know who Fellini was, but said that when... He knew or said that he knew that Butch was involved with drugs. Proceda didn't think Butch was capable of committing murders. In an interview years later, Butch's friend Barry Springer. Barry, Barry, <laughs> Barry oh wrong. I know it sounds so wrong much guy. like it. <laughs> said that at the same that at the time of the murders, Butch had been using uh drugs had oh sorry had been using drugs for five years and that the drugs were taking their toll on him making him dangerous neighbors described butch as a wild teenager and was not all there the thought he uh the thought he did commit the murder they thought he did commit the murders okay so there we go so they they said he was a wild teenager and he was not all there so so the neighbors he was known as definitely known as that crazy person in the neighborhood. Well, and that sounds exactly like what you were just saying. Mm-hmm. As police continued searching the DeFeo home, they found the 30, 35 caliber Marlin rifle. It wasn't among the firearms in Butch's room, but in a separate box with the 22 caliber rifle. Investigators learned that Butch was a gun buff and that in the weeks leading up to the murders, he was looking to purchase a silencer. Okay, so... So now we know that he was, I mean, he, well, we knew that from hunting, I guess, that mm-hmm. he had some guns. Yeah. Um, but uh, what do you need a silencer for? Not for hunting. Right. But, and do we get in, I don't know if you have any information later on about how like none of the neighbors hurt, like oh, these people were shot. Right. Like six people. Well, I know shot. two of them were shot a lot twice, of, and like no neighbors. I read so much into said this. That they I don't heard anything. I don't remember if um, it's in this story or not, but I know the neighbors said that all they heard was the sheepdog. The barking. dog. Yeah. Yeah, the family dog barking. They never heard gunshots or anything. But he didn't. There's no evidence that he used the silencer on no. his weapon. Nope, that's what they said. That there was no evidence that they that the silencer was used, and. That the neighbors um, reported all they heard was a dog barking. That's crazy to me. And I haven't seen pictures, so I don't know. Um, 
I've only seen pictures of the house. I haven't seen like the other houses around it. So I don't know how close. Yeah. And I really didn't pay attention to they that. Are. Um, I did just stuff that I read into for, you know, the podcast and of course stuff you've heard over the years. Um, and, uh, but, um, it's just hard to believe that nobody, nobody heard anything but the dog barking. Right. Um, after, Finding the murder weapon, police uh, focused their investigation on Butch DeFeo. When police questioned him again, Butch continued to insist that they needed to find Fellini. When he was asked if he ate dinner with the family that night, they found Butch's attitude towards the, his family wasn't that of a grieving son and big brother. Butch said that he didn't eat dinner with his family that night. When asked why why he said that it was because his mother Louise uh, was a lousy cook and that she made some brown crap because I don't want to cuss on here <laughs> uh, so, uh, some brown crap in a bowl and uh, for dinner and he wasn't going to eat it when asked about his family he said nothing he had nothing nice to say he described his brothers Mark and John as effing pigs he said uh, that he shared a bathroom with them and that they left it a mess, usually with toilet paper hanging all out of the toilet and crap on the back of the seat. <laughs> Gross. <laughs> um, when asked about Dawn, which, descri- which uh, describes her as a fat F <laughs> who played her music too loud. He said that when he yelled at her to turn it down, his father would intervene and hit him. He had nothing uh, nothing to say about Allison. When asked about his grandfather, Michael Briganti Sr., Butch claim, or called him a cheap bastard and said that he took advantage of him and stole from him any chance he got by coming in late and leaving early. Interesting... Uh, Interestingly, his family had just been killed. You would think someone uh, who would be focusing on all, someone wouldn't be focusing on all the negative points, you know, of each family right. member that had just died. Um, police told him that they were, f- that they had found the murder weapon and the ammo. They also said that his family was determined to be, to have been killed between three and 4 a.m., so they could not have been killed while Butch was at work. Butch then told them, or told one of many stories of what happened that night. He said that Fellini and an accomplice murdered his family and forced him to watch. Investigators then asked if he was forced to take part in the murders. They asked if the two men forced him to get... Uh, his hands dirty, so to speak, and kill one of the family members. Butch put his head in his hands and told the investigators to give him a minute. Yeah, I got to think of uh, an answer to this. Um, it's like cramming a Twix bar in his mouth. I feel like, like those commercials. I feel like I feel like the investigators should not have done that because they're kind of like feeding this to Coercing. him. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's just, I don't know, giving him ideas. Well, he then said that uh, Fellini and the accomplice weren't there that night 
and that it didn't happen that way at all. It was then that he confessed to murdering his whole family. And during his trial, his attorney tried to mount an insanity defense. He claimed that DeFeo heard voices that told him his family was plotting against him. He also claimed that he was possessed. <laughs> At one point, he was shown a picture of his mother and claimed that he didn't know who she was. He also claimed that he killed them in self-defense. When he first confessed to the murders, he admitted to getting rid of the evidence. He also made sure to call home in front of people he knew and complained to everybody he saw that day that his family was not answering the phone and that he didn't have keys to get in the house. His behavior shows some organization and planning. So like you said, you know, we were talking about he, you know, made the calls in front of people so they could be alibis. But he knew the cars were in the garage. Mm -hmm. So he had been by the house. He had been by the house and but was going around making sure that he told everybody all day long that nobody was answering the phone. And this was like after he had killed them. Right. Yeah. Let's see. His behavior shows some, okay, showed some organization and planning. He was cognizant of what he'd done. Psychiatrist Daniel Schwartz supported the insanity plea, but Dr. Harold Zolan countered on behalf of the prosecution. Dr. Zolan said that although DeFeo was a user of heroin and LSD, he had an antisocial personality disorder and was aware of his actions at the time of the crime. DeFeo was found guilty of six counts of second-degree murder, in November of 1975, he was sentenced to six sentences of 25 years to life. DeFeo filed many appeals in request to the parole board, which were all denied. Well, thank goodness they were all denied. I don't agree with that insanity plea stuff anyway. Oh, I don't either. Like, I don't. No, especially whenever you're coming into a, where a whole family was murdered. And even, like, the moms who, like, kill their children and they're like, yeah, I heard voices. They told me oh, to yeah. do it. They were stuff. possessed by demons. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't care. Like, if, if you were a love, you know, I mean, I just don't agree. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just, no. that's, I'm, I'm not even, that's a whole nother topic. I'm not <laughs> getting into it. But I do not support the insanity plea. And Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, moving on. During the year, during the years, he said that his mother committed the murders and that he didn't want to upset his grandfather by saying that Louise DeFeo was the killer. He also said that a demonic female figure with black hands wearing a black hood handed him the murder weapon. He admitted he was under the influence of drugs in the TV room at the time. DeFeo also eventually admitted to drinking a fifth of scotch daily in addition to the drugs. He described his behavior around the time of the murders as out of control. His friend Barry Springer described him as an outright junkie. Man. Uh, he went from blaming his mother to saying that his sister, Dawn, was the killer and that he killed her in self-defense. In a prison interview, DeFeo said that the entire family wasn't supposed to be killed. He said that the fa- that his father was the only one who had to go and that he was planning on hiring someone to kill him. Fellini. I uh, started to see, yeah, part <laughs> of the hitman guy. He said that, um, and then that guy probably didn't take the job, so now he's trying to blame everything on mm-hmm. him. Um, he said that he uh, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't have done it 
uh, wouldn't what he said that he wouldn't have had it, it happen any other way than in the house, most likely in his car. On the night of the murders, he said that he told Don that if she wanted to kill their parents, just go ahead and do it. He got her the weapon and told her that it was all ready to go. Just pull the trigger. He said that she shot both their parents and that he left the house. Uh, when he came back, he said uh, he found their siblings dead. When he confronted Don, she pointed the gun at him and said that he uh, fought with her and that he was that he shot her in self-defense. Well, of course he can say anything he wants because these people are already dead and they can't defend right. themselves. Well, and you notice he's changed his story like so five times, times in the in just what we've read so far. Right. Um, there are many uh, versions of what happened in Amityville on the morning of November 13th, 1974. Uh, Robert DeFeo Jr. has come forward with stories ranging from it being a mob hit, admitting it was him, to female demons, and voices heard in a drug-induced fog, to his mother snapping and killing the family, uh, to his sister Dawn being the killer, and having him and and having to kill her in self-defense. So that's kind of like what we were just right. talking about. I mean, there's all these different variations of, you know, the different different stuff that he came up with through this time. Right. Uh, through the years, it's been questioned um, how six people were killed in their beds by loud shotgun blasts. Uh, was the family drugged? Which is kind of what you brought up earlier. Mm-hmm. Did DeFeo have an accomplice? He said in, in a prison interview that he doesn't know why no one believes his stories. Probably because you keep changing them yes, every, exactly. every time someone asks you. Um, how is it that they... Uh, Let's see, how is it that they think he acted alone? Forensic evidence indicates that the family was asleep. Um, their time of death determined to be in between uh, 3 and 4 a.m. No drugs were present in their systems. So that kind of goes, I read that too earlier, um, where they were saying that, or he said actually in an interview that he had drugged them, and that's why they were all, like, he, it was easier for him to yeah, kill them. because like there he, was not a struggle or something. Right. And then um, the medical examiner, whenever they did the autopsies and everything, said that there was no drugs or anything found in their system. Um, let's see. The medical examiner determined that they were all shot at close range and that Louise DeFeo did wake up and turn around just before she was shot. This indicates that the shots fired on her husband did wake her up. This is kind of off subject. Well, I mean, it's not off subject, but going back to the other stories, like it would have, if he wouldn't have changed it so much, it would have been a little bit more believable that, hey, maybe they did like, you know, shoot the parents. Like if the dad was supposedly abusive and the mom just let that happen, like he just let them, him be abusive towards them. Like, I mean, I could have like believed that, but that doesn't make sense of why the kids, the other kids were killed. Right. Exactly. Now, if, like you said, if it would have just been the dad, because we've seen that on ID channels, we've seen that on all kinds of murder mystery shows, and I've heard it on podcasts and stuff, um, where 
you know, a dad's beating on, you know, drunk and all that and beating on the kids and all this stuff. And then one of them finally snaps and kills mm-hmm. the dad. You know, I could have got that. I could have right. been on board with that. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to the kids being killed, I don't know what he was thinking. Yeah. Obviously, he wasn't. Right. Um, but then that also, I mean, stick with one story. Mm-hmm. Stick with that story. Isn't there another one? Like, there one story he stated that Don killed the dad. The mom was mad. The mom killed everybody else. Out of killed rage. Killed the other kids. Yep. Yeah. And then he came in and then uh, killed the mom. Killed the mom. Yeah. 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 That was another story um, that was said on a different different thing. So there's multiple stories. You know, just take the one where your dad was beating the shit out of you mm-hmm. and leave it at right. that. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm not trying to give him any pointers. I mean, obviously he's dead and stuff now, but I'm not trying to justify what he's done. I'm just saying I could see that side of it if that is really what happened. But the fact that you have changed stories and now you're like, nobody will listen to me. Right. Well, I mean, every time you do an interview, your story's different. So. Yeah, I don't get it. So we have a story of a dysfunctional family, a family described as constantly fighting with each other under the thumb of a violent father. Perhaps this served as pressure cooker for the family's eldest son. People who knew his family said that he bore the brunt of his father's abuse. He also was verbally abused and beaten up at school. While it's certainly not an excuse being the victim of constant violence since childhood can certainly cause someone to become violent. We also could look to mental illness as a factor. DeFeo's friend even said that the abuse in the household was so severe that Dawn could have snapped. Abuse, mental illness, or a combination of the two, those who knew DeFeo all described him as violent with little provocation. Whatever happened that night was taken to Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s grave. He passed away on March 12th. 2021 at the age of 69 he was in he was still in cons, incarcerated at sullivan correctional facility in fallsburg new york yeah so, so he, he recently just died yep. like back in march of this year yeah um now at the end of this you know i was talking about mental illness and stuff like that now obviously mental illness and stuff is nothing to joke about right um you know uh, there are people that suffer from different stuff like that. And I hope people that are like that and do struggle with this kind of stuff from day to day, I hope they are getting help. Right. Um, but my thing with this story is, was he suffering from the, this, uh, mental illness or was he, you know, or was that just another line of BS so try to justify what happened. Right. Um, because you're getting into uh, a whole different different ball game there. But, I mean, again, you've told 100 different stories. And now, I've you know, it kind of sounds like, well, they're trying to justify, well, this is why. This is what happened. Um, did you say, you some of the other research that you did off of this, that... It, shortly after, uh, of course, it was before they, before he confessed to the killings, but he was asking how he could get the life insurance. Oh, yeah, yeah. That was another thing. Um, 
And that was during an interview with police. Yeah. He was so asking. That's definitely motive. He was asking. Yeah, it was it was brought up um, during an interview with the police. He was asking how long it takes to claim life and mm-hmm. the life insurance. So, what you know, right there, that could have been a motive right there for he was trying to kill him to get some money for his drug habit. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yep. You know, I don't think anybody really knows. Um, and you know, of course, he stayed in prison until he died in march right. of this year um now we went through we've you know we've talked about um the murders and kind of what happened um through the house i know we've already been on this almost an hour it is you know kind of a long deal going through all that but i want to talk a little bit about the people that moved in the house after this after happened. um this is kind of where some of the paranormal, paranormal. stuff comes in uh, which is with uh, the Lutz family, um, George and Kathy Lutz. Uh, so if you want to go ahead and start. Okay. And this stuff, this is from the New York Post. Right, yeah. This part is. It's been more than 45 years since George and Kathy Lutz fled their house in Amityville, Long Island, claiming it was haunted by evil spirits. The couple's terrifying tale of demonic possession inspired the 1977 book, The Amityville Horror, a hit 1975 movie of the same name and several sequels, including a 2005 remake. That actually came out in 1979. What did? The Amityville Horror. You said 75. Oh, did I say that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, so the book came out in 1977 and the movie came out in 1979. There we and go. then there was a remake in 2005 and it says other sequels and... Uh, apparently 16 of them. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> Though their story is now widely thought of as a hoax, the Lutz's so-called horror house continues to fascinate the public. The three-story colonial, its original address was 112 Ocean Avenue, but was changed to 108 to detour, uh, deter tourists, uh, was the site of the brutal slaughters. And as, you know, we mentioned the whole, you know, the first, the whole segment was on Ronald DeFeo Jr., um, who killed his parents and his, all of his siblings. Um, he died behind bars uh, on March 12th of this year. And, um, you know, there for a long time, actually, I didn't even know that they had changed the address. Yeah, I didn't either. Um, you know, so the actually, people. Actually, this, I do in the, you know, this. Is the first time I ever found out. So that I guess they if you're change go- the address. Well, if you're googling it and you're trying to find the house because you want to take a picture in front of it or something, and um, you'd never find it, um, except for with us in New York Post. Yeah. So know. it was originally 112 Ocean Avenue, and it was changed to 108 Ocean Avenue. Okay. Let's see. In December 1975. Um, a month after uh, DeFeo was convicted of the murders, the Lutz couple uh, and their three young kids moved into the house, which they reportedly snatched up for only $80,000. Okay, so question, because I, I know <laughs> we were just doing that, but I don't know how long after. Did it say, did we ever say when he was actually convicted? I would have to go back and look. I don't know off the top of my head, and I don't want to quote wrong. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, okay. Well, they were okay. So here's the thing. So they were they were killed. He murdered them November fourteenth of nineteen seventy four, 
and then just a little over a year, which is December well, of 1975, is when the couple moved in. So it had been just like a, a year and a month after the murders that they moved in, correct? I thought the murders actually happened November 13th. Okay. Well, <laughs> it happened November of 1974. I'm just looking at this news picture, and I guess they were removing the bodies on November 14th. So, oh, okay. That's where I got that date. Gotcha. So, um, the day they moved, uh, which, you know, the Lutzes, the day the, that they moved, uh, the couple had a priest come and bless the house. Uh, but George claimed the holy man felt an unseen hand slap him in the sewing room and heard a voice say, get out. I want to know why they didn't interview the priest to see if that actually happened. Like, if anything bad. And they may have. It just may not be on this report, but I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, soon after, the couple said that they began noticing odd things in the house, such as doors being ripped from the hinges, cabinet slamming shut, and slime oozing from the ceiling. Um, there were odors in the house that came and went, George told ABC News in 2006. Um, there were sounds. The front door would slam shut in the middle of the night. So he, and he said, I could not get warm in the house for many days. He claimed that he would mysteriously wake up at 3.15 a.m. nearly every day, which is around the same time the DeFeo murders were had supposedly happened. At times, his wife was physically transformed into an old woman and once levitated, George said. One night, he heard his children's bed slamming up and down on the floor, but claimed he couldn't do anything because an invisible force was paralyzing him. That's probably his wife for saying that she was an old hag <laughs> levitating, but go ahead. The family moved out after only 28 days reportedly leaving their possessions behind, including clothes in their closets and food in the fridge. Two months later, a local TV crew did a segment on the house bringing in so-called ghost hunters and paranormal experts to evaluate the couple's claims. Now, do you know if that, in fact, is when the Warrens... That is when the Warrens came in. So it is. Ed and Lorraine Warren um, were the paranormal experts that came in to investigate uh, the house at this time. It was like a psychic slumber party, reporter uh, Laura Didio recalled to ABC. Uh, the team uh, took several photos inside, including a now infamous image apparently showing a ghost boy peering out from one of the bedrooms. Now, this photo is creepy. It is creepy. If you, and I will post, I will definitely post that on our Instagram. Instagram and Facebook. If this is real, if this photo would have been real, it is creepy. Mm -hmm. But I it agree, is definitely. a photo as an investigator. You know, it's a photo that I would have had to been there. Mm -hmm. I would have to, I want the negatives reviewed and all this stuff. Um, but if it is true and the guy that took the photo is like, hey, I was there, and this is really what happened, then it is a creepy photo of this kid just kind of looking around the corner. I wonder if anyone has investigated the negatives or anything of that Yeah, photo. I don't know. Just like now they can do that. Yeah. But I don't even know, you know, where, like, 
what happened to the the negative of that photo or anything to see if it was. But I mean, it definitely it is really creepy. Well, and. But even me, when we're watching all the paranormal shows and everything, and I'm always like, yeah, if that's true, if that actually happened, that's, that's crazy. That's creepy. Right. You just you, you just never know unless you were there. Well, and Lorraine Warren and other psychics, you know, they also they all agreed that there was a, de- a demonic force present in this house. Um, the Lutzes later uh, collaborated with author Jay Anson for his best-selling book, the family said they never signed a contract with Anson and that uh, the successful film uh, spinoff netted them uh, $300,000. So that's pretty good to make $300,000 and didn't even have a contract. Right. Uh, many people expressed doubts about, the, about their horror story, which fell under even more scrutiny after DeFeo's defense attorney, uh, William Weber, admitted he and the couple came up with a tale over several bottles of wine. So DeFeo, which Butch or Ronald Jr., mm-hmm. whatever you... Um, it's weird that his, his attorney would even be speaking, like right. associating with the people who lived in that house. So his, his defense attorney sat down with the Lutzes and apparently was drinking with them, and they came up with this, this whole uh, story... About the house being haunted. Right. And, I mean, he came out and said that in interviews. Uh, he said, we took a real, real-life real incident and transposed them. Uh, he said, a current, he, told, he told that to a current affair in 1988. And in other words, it was all a hoax. So, my thing is, they're trying to say that it wasn't a hoax because... Well, he is, but the couple, the Lutzes are trying to say it's not a hoax because they gave their story to that guy who made the book and they didn't even have a contract with him. Right, yeah. But the defense attorney is saying... like, yeah, we made that. We had been drinking and we made it all up. So that we could make money. Right. Yeah. And now, on the other end of it, so he comes out and he says, you know, we can make a bunch of money if we say that the house is haunted. Mm -hmm. Because the murders happened there. Right. And they're like, that's a good idea. Because um, they had supposedly sunk all their money into this house to redo it. So a lot of speculation, too, was the fact that the reason they left the house was because they had ran out of money and couldn't get out of their contract. So they um, came up with this elaborate story of it being haunted and stuff to flee the house in hopes that they wouldn't be penalized. That's another one, right. another story. Um, so, you know, who knows? But still George who died in 2006 maintained that the story was the real deal telling ABC. I can just say what I experienced. His son, Daniel Lutz, who was 10 at the time, has said that George invited mysterious and dangerous forces into their lives due to his interest in the occult. The Queen's resident recounted his side of the story in the 2013 documentary, My Amityville Horror. George's stepson, Christopher Quarantino, who was seven when he lived in the house, came forward in 2005 to say that the events in the Amityville Horror books and movies had been stretched to the point of fiction. 
No, that's that's uh, anytime Hollywood gets a hold of anything, mm-hmm. um, they Every are going to add some kind of done. yeah, they're going to add some kind of dramatic something to it. Um, just like if you watch The Conjuring or um, Annabelle. Of course, Annabelle in the movies looks absolutely nothing like it does in real life. Isn't it in real life? It isn't it. Uh, it's a Raggedy, raggedy Ann doll. Ann, yeah. yeah. I had um, a Raggedy Ann doll when I was a kid. So, I mean, <laughs> you know, Hollywood's going to do whatever they need to do to sell. Right. That's what they're there for. Yeah, that Annabelle doll looks a lot more creepy than a Raggedy. Oh, abso- absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So, Quarantino also said that George was obsessed with the occult and had exaggerated some paranormal incidents he believes did occur when he was a child. He's a professional showman, in my opinion, Quarantino said. I just feel as though we're being exploited. The notorious house has passed through the hands of several owners since the Lutzes have lived there, and no one else has reported any spooky happenings. No one. Ever since the Lutzes left, no one has experienced not one anything person. paranormal. No one has ever had ooze coming from the ceiling. Now, I definitely believe that something as tragic as those murders, a whole family being murdered, can be can invite negative activity Absolutely. to where it could be a place of paranormal happening paranormal activity i definitely believe that i just think it's weird that these people reported having all these strange things happen um i think the doors being ripped off the hinges that's that's really much and slime coming from that i mean that's just that's a little much but i definitely think that paranormal activity you know Uh, could have happened but since no one else has experienced it no other owners, nobody else that has ever lived there, they've not experienced it. Well, so. and to me, um, whenever, like I was saying earlier, you know, they sank all their money into this, yeah. this house. Um, and then they were kind of in financial problems, had mm-hmm. financial trouble. And then they sit down with the defense attorney. I don't know if they became friends with a defense attorney because they were in contact with them when they found out about the murders or, you know, what really happened or whatever. Or, you know, how they came in contact with him, I don't know. But they came up with this elaborate story, and I really think, kind of like what you were saying, as negative stuff had happened in that house and... First off, I don't know why anybody would want to live in it. But, yeah, I wouldn't. Um, no way. But the negative stuff that happened in the house, not even just the murders, but, I mean, everything leading up to that where apparently they had a, you know, the dad was abusive and all that stuff. All that stuff could conjure up something negative. It could, and then with I... spirits could be trapped there. Yeah, I don't know. But for it to be, you know... For them to sit down and be like, okay, here's a story we can spin to make some money. I really honestly think that that's what happened. I do too. But going back to the why anybody would want to live there, I could live in a house that somebody died in. I could not, I would not be okay living with, uh, living in a place that somebody was actually killed in, especially six people, especially a whole family. I believe, going back to talking about that could be a place of paranormal activity just because of all the tragic you know, bad negativity there it could draw 
negative spirits and activity. And I think certain people could be more prone to experience that. Does that make sense? Right, yeah. Just like they say some people are more prone to experience demonic depression if they're, like, really down, if they're on a low part, and if they think, like, man, I've really messed up, there's no way I could ever be forgiven of this. They say that sometimes those are some of the people that are so down on themselves that those will be the ones that are more apt to be possessed. I... You know, I'm not going into, I'm not going into dynamic possession here. I'm just saying that certain people can Next be. Next on the podcast, Zach Bagans. I know. I'm just saying that certain it, people, I think people, different people can experience things. Like, right, you know absolutely. how some people are able to experience the paranormal activity and then other people, like nothing has ever happened to them at all. Kind of like psychic mediums. I'm not saying I believe every psychic medium that I see on TV. I think the majority of them are fake. I will admit that. Um, but I do believe I do believe some of them. I believe that some people just have they experience things different. Right. Absolutely. So I'm not saying that one family couldn't move into a place and like maybe just a certain members of the family can experience stuff. I'm not saying that that could not happen. I'm just saying I don't believe it happened in this case. I think the Amityville horror is a ho- horror. <laughs> I say <laughs> that, that Amityville horror. I I say that word different. <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, horror. That's or probably what started the murders. Um, I just believe that that's not what happened in this case. I think that was all just a big hoax. Right, and I agree. Um, now I've never been been there. Would I've, I still like to investigate it? Heck yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yes, I um, would like to. It's been changed now, though. You said yeah. it, anytime you think of the Amityville house, you think of that, the you know, the windows and stuff on it. And you said those have been changed and everything. Right, yeah. The windows, you know, that, that creepy looking rounded windows that kind of look like eyes and stuff mm-hmm. that were on the side of the house have been changed. Yeah. Um, they are now just regular square Squared, windows. Squared, rectangular, whatever. Yeah. Um, and... You know, I'm assuming uh, they, you know, they like they change the address and stuff. I'm assuming the people that live there don't want to be known. I'm sorry, but if you're living there, you're going to be known as living in Amityville House. Yes, you are. You might as well dress up like Butch to fail for Halloween (laughs) and answer the the door (laughs) trick-or-treaters with a shotgun or something. Because you're going to be known as that house no matter how long or how, you know, how long you live there or how much you change it. Uh-huh. It's going to be that house. Yes, it is. Always. Um, so, I mean, that's uh, just the way, I mean, that's the way it is. And you know that moving into it. Uh-huh. I wonder how many, how many owners it's had since. Yeah, I don't know. I didn't look that up. Nope. I just know that they say after the Lutzes left. We always think of stuff when we're in the middle of it. Right, oh, we yeah. We should have looked that up and we... You know, always like, yeah, we're going to have to look a little bit more into that. But, yeah, I really would like to know how and many I don't owners, know, so many more owners. And I don't through. know even something else you looked up. I don't know if anybody has invited any paranormal investigators into the house since, since then. But with them, like I said, changing everything and all this stuff and not having any experiences, I'm sure they have not. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they said, leave us alone. We live here. You know, we don't want anybody coming around. But... Sorry to tell you, you're going to be known as the people that live in that house as long as you're there. That house will always be famous. The story will always be famous. And, um, you know, they just capitalized on it. Apparently, 
with 16 different films mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. um, pertaining to this. Uh, but they've capitalized on these people dying and, yeah, you know, that's just, sad. well, that's Hollywood. Yeah. You know, that's what sells. And now you have, you bring in famous paranormal investigators like Ed and Lorraine Warren, who, um, you know, I don't want to speak bad about the Warrens or anything, but there's a lot of speculation that they uh, fabricated a lot of stuff, uh, to, you know, to benefit paranormal yeah, research. But did they? I don't know. No. I didn't know them personally. Right. You know, um, and uh, I know people who. And they have both died. So right. They have. She passed away not, not too, too long, long ago. ago. Yeah. Um, but I've got, uh, you know, I know I've got friends that know them or knew them and they thought highly of them and they thought you know that they uh everything that they said was truthful and then but then you always got the skeptics that everything Ed and Lorraine Warren said was fabricated and made up to benefit themselves so I mean you know everybody's got their own opinion right um whenever I first started into paranormal investigations you know i read everything the Warrens published, you know, I did everything I could to dig into, um, them because they were a lot of the founders of different, different right. investigations like that. Now you have the conjuring movies. I um, love, love the conjuring movies. Well, and they're, and they're based off loosely. We'll say loosely mm-hmm. based on, uh, and Lorraine Warren's right. investigations, you know? Um, so, I mean, there are, you know, you're, I really like the actors that play them, though. Just throwing that out there. Like, I think they do a oh, yeah. really good job. Yeah. Um, and I, uh, I mean, you just, it doesn't matter the the truth to Amityville or the paranormal side. What we do know is that a family died. Robert DeFeo Jr. went to prison. He was a drug addict. Mm-hmm. Drank. Apparently had an attitude problem. You know, I mean, he was, he's every every bit of negative stuff you could think yes. of, he had a part of it. And his his story changed a hundred times. Every t- every interview he did was different. So. Yeah, like you said, we'll never. That's the factual part. Yeah. That's the true part. Yeah, and we'll never know exactly why he felt the need to kill his whole family. No, and. But that is that is the documented police report, true facts, crime facts that happened at this house. You get into the paranormal side of it, and it's wishy-washy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, you have people that believe, you have people that don't believe. And there are aspects of it, you know, that I could see as a paranormal investigator, I can see possibly, yeah, some you know, of that some of that could, could be true. Have happened. But then why hasn't... You know, well, like I like what you were saying earlier, some people are more prone. Um, and uh, so there's people that are more prone to receive stuff like that. Um, I do not consider myself psychic or anything related to that. But there are certain investigations in certain places that when I go to these places, I mean, you like you can feel different things. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. And, or empath, I guess you would say, or whatever. But you, you know, I can, you feel the emotion, I guess is what I'm saying, of whatever had happened. Right. But, I mean, that's, you know, 
just depending on where you're at. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, one of the big places for me was Gettysburg, the battlefield. Um, as soon as you step in that area or you're around that area, it's nothing but emotion. I mean, I found my, you know, kind of got my, found myself where I was like, you know, I wanted to cry. I felt like I needed to cry, but I had no reason right. why. And I think we brought this up on other podcasts before because you have said that, and I've never been there, so I haven't experienced that. But I say that I'm not so much that I know I brought this up on a podcast before, but I'm not so much that about places, but people like the guy I passed who right, was walking yeah. along the road, and I just wanted to cry when I seen him. No reason that I would want to cry, but I did. Right. Um, so I, I think, you know, like you said, well, I mean, like you said, uh, there are people that are prone to pick up on stuff like that. And some people that aren't, maybe that is why, um, no one that lives there now has ever picked up on anything. I don't know. Or maybe the fact that, um, uh, there really wasn't anything going on. You know, and they were really in that debt, didn't know what to do. They came up with this story. I think everybody will have their own opinion on it. I think for the that rest of the time. DeFeo guy was because I know it said some things that they thought he might have been demon possessed. I don't think he was demon possessed at all. I think he was drug possessed. I think he just <laughs> killed his family. That's what's wrong with for him. For money. He just killed his family. For inheritance. And the Lutzes. Or life insurance. Right. Whatever. The Lutzes, they might have had a few weird going ons at their house and they blew it out of proportion to make money or for whatever reason. They found a way to capitalize on the tragedy that happened at the house. That's truly what I... I do think it's weird that they left only 28 days after. After the hap- that, because they happened, realized how but... much renovation it was going to take when they moved in. Haven't you seen Ryan Reynolds <laughs> trying to fix up that house? The heater wasn't working, you know, well, yeah. and all that stuff. And they realized they'd already sank their money into it. Ryan Reynolds wasn't having none of that. No. <laughs> so, um, you know, then it's uh, so they just decided look, we bit off more than we could chew here. We got a good deal on the house. Um, you know, they acted like they didn't know in the, in the films, really. They didn't know that people had been murdered. Man, how would you not know? Yeah. So that's, so they got this big, um, this big, uh, discount or whatever on this co- nice colonial house, you know, um, that apparently they could, nobody could sell and all this. And then they finally, they bought it, you know, and but that, in their defense, I will say, Google was not a thing back then, so it's not like you could like put in an address and like see all this stuff. The history they were out of the they were they did not live around that area, but they still lived in New York, so that would have been on the news. You would have heard that. You would have heard. You would have seen it. I really think that you would have heard uh, a family unless you did not. That was national news. Unless you did not own a TV or a radio, it was national news. Yeah, so you would have um that you know about this the whole family being. I think they definitely would have known about it. I mean, look at, um, you know, this situation with Brian Laundry. Uh-huh. Um, that was him and his girlfriend traveling around in a van. Yep. And then all of a sudden, you know, she's missing. 
And he comes home, and somehow, I mean, that story became national news. Yeah, I wish that any time anybody went missing, that it got as much publicity as that. Uh, well, kind of bad and good, because I know, like, the it's given the person who did it, like, publicity. But, I mean, I just wish they took it more serious in finding people, other people who are missing, as they did the Gabby girl. Well, and on top of that, um, you talk about... Uh, publicity and so i mean you know he's dead too yeah so i mean it didn't you know i don't know but well, i, I mean, think in well, the that's beginning still... we didn't know that he th- well i mean we Wait, <laughs> i think right. we all yeah. knew he did it but in the beginning like it wasn't a known fact that he did it i'm just saying that when anybody goes missing and you, even like some kids it's like why do they publicize some kids and trying to help find them but not everybody not everyone gets the same uh not everybody gets an amber alert yeah yeah and why not like right. if they took it as seriously for every child or every person that goes missing as they do for you know the the ones that are always you know broadcast and on the news and stuff like I just think it's sad. Right. I'm not all yeah, of them are treated, you know. Somehow the we same. went from Amityville to Amber Alerts. But <laughs> like you said, we'll have to post that picture, and you can you'll have to take from this what you want. If you believe that the the, the Lutzes really did experience all that, you, that's you know. Well, for you to decide, opinion, yeah. and you can decide. We'll post the picture again on our Facebook page and on our Instagram page, and you can decide if you think this is a real picture. I'm just saying, if that is a real picture, it's, it's creepy. creepy as hell. Yeah, it, it is, is. It's creepy. Um, but uh, yeah. I mean, we've uh been going for a little about an hour and a half. Yeah, this is probably one of the longer um, episodes we've done. So if you hung out with us this whole time, thank you. Yeah, I hope you got some uh good information uh you know to maybe dig or, yeah if you dig want to into, do a little bit more research on your own about it you know yeah if you find out anything different let us know you know shoot us an email mm-hmm. um or uh you know in, we're on instagram yeah, we're on facebook just on facebook or instagram yeah. just give us a message on there yeah you don't it's want easier. me to try to repeat the email right now because yeah. we'll mess we, it up yeah, oh don't. it's uh yeah never no mind. don't do it um but uh <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you hung out with us this long, thanks for listening. Yeah, I know thanks. it was kind of, kind of long, but we knew, you know, 47th anniversary of Amityville is coming up on the 13th, and we wanted to, you know, kinda... I think it's a topic everybody knows about. They just might not know the extent of right, it. Right, yeah, for sure. And um, when you think of the Amityville, you just think of the Lutzes and not, like, the actual murders that happened there. Right. So we just wanted to give you guys a little bit more little information bit of a, on yeah. it. So. Yeah, so this was more of a... Uh, true crime slash paranormal mm-hmm. episode i guess yep. but that's it that's yeah, all i've thanks. got thanks thanks for listening guys and hopefully we'll have another podcast for you guys soon yeah if you have any suggestions or anything you know i don't know if we mentioned this last time but we added mexico to our list yep i don't remember if i said that last time i don't think so but uh so we're listing you know 16 17 countries yeah, now that's and awesome uh you know we appreciate thousand you guys. subscribers so i mean yeah, if anybody has any suggestions or maybe a case that you know of, a uh, paranormal case or something that is not well known, um, that maybe, you know, you were told or something, shoot us a direct message or yeah, something. Yeah, I think we like doing, you know, we like doing stuff like that that's not as... The stuff that people haven't heard a million times. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of people have heard Amy Deville, but the 
anniversary's coming up, mm-hmm. so I thought we'd touch base on this. But uh, and do like you said, do more about the murder side of it, um, and add a little bit of paranormal. Yeah. But but yeah, just shoot us a direct message on Facebook, Quad State Paranormal, or um, Instagram. Yeah, it's just also Quad State Paranormal. We like hearing from you guys, and again, go to our Facebook or Instagram and check out that picture. Oh yeah, we're definitely going to post that. <laughs> so let us know what you think. If you think it's a could be a actual photo or. If you think it's a hoax. Yeah, let us know. All right, we'll talk to you guys later. Thanks, guys. Bye. See ya.